Most of you will know Pam, but I would like to take the opportunity to say a few words about Pam. And then I also have to say, to say a few words is not easy, because if you go online and read about her achievements and impact on educational research the past years, it's a lot. But I will just mention a few. Pam is Professor of Education at the Department of Education, University of Oxford, and you're also Senior Research Fellow at Jesus College in Oxford. And we're really, really pleased that you're also one of our uh, associate professors at our centre. Previously, she was a professor of the School of Education, University of Nottingham, and a professor of the Institute of Education, University of London, where she was, was director of the International School Effectiveness and Improvement Centre. And the research over more than 30 years has focused on school effectiveness and improvement, school leadership, teaching effectiveness, and promoting equity and inclusion in education. She has a particular interest in longitudinal studies and the use of mixed methods research approaches. Her review of key characteristics of effective schools in the 90s informed the development of the Ofsted framework of inspections for schools. She directed evaluation of the Making Belfast Work Raising School Standards Project in the 90s and was part of the Improving School Effectiveness Study in Scotland. She was lead director of the National Evaluation of New Community Schools funded by the Scottish Executive Education Department in the beginning of 2000 and led a value-added component of the Department of Education's evaluation of the Key Stage 3 pilot in England in 2002. She has, also been currently, uh, she has also been principal investigator on a major longitudinal study of effective preschool and primary provision tracking children from age 3 to 16 years old. And that was also funded by the Department of um, DCFSC, which has informed the development of preschool education policy in England. She's also a principal investigator on a new DCSF-funded longitudinal evaluation of children's centre, uh, studying their impact on children and families. So, as you can see, uh, on top of this, she has also been an advisor for Skolverke in Sweden, the Department of Education in Northern Ireland, Scotland, Brunei, and I'm very pleased to say also for Norwegian researchers. And that is uh, why we're so pleased that you are a speaker for us tonight. I would also like to say that if any of you are interested to read more of her research, you can go to the research gate online, where you will see that she has now more than 272 publications. They are cited more than 4,000 times, which makes her the top 10% researchers around the world in our field. We're really proud of you, uh, Professor mm -hmm. Pam uh, Sammons, and we're really looking forward to your speech. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Teresa. I'm delighted to be associated with the um, OUCEA and um, also to have been asked to give the annual uh, lecture. It's, it's a great honour. And don't you just love statistics? I didn't know half of what the, <laughs> the research gate, so uh, I'll have to look at it with more attention. Um, well, today um, I have a lecture and it will be available um, after, uh, probably in the next week or two, it will be put up online and also the, the PowerPoint. Um, I'm, not, I'm going to read some of the lecture, but I'm also just going to talk to the PowerPoint because otherwise I think I won't, uh, I will go on too long um, and it might be slightly more interesting. Um, what I'm going to look at today is give you an overview of education effectiveness research, a little bit of a, my involvement in it over the last 35 years now. Um, talk about effectiveness, what do we mean by education effectiveness? It's not a simple concept, um, there are various issues involved and I'm going to particularly look at consistency, stability and differential effectiveness and I'll unpack those terms for those uh, new to, the, to you. Um, there's an interest in student voice using self-report measures and I'm going to particularly use examples from our EPSI study, Effective Preschool, Primary and Secondary Education uh, Research. Uh, that went on from 1996 to 2014, so it really is a longitudinal study. We followed children from three plus through to the end of 
what for them was compulsory education at 16. And we have got a little follow-up of them, um, and we've published a couple of reports, and we've got one due next week coming out for the Sutton Trust, where we followed up that group of students to A-level. Um, but unfortunately, resources were such we couldn't follow up their self-reports, which is what I'm going to focus on today. So no views from them at 18. Uh, we'll have to look at their views in secondary schools today. Um, and I'm also going to look at how uh, measures that can be created can help us in predicting different kinds of outcomes. I'm going to look at GCSE outcomes, our public examinations at age 16 in England. Um, I'm also going to look at a couple of other measures that are of topical interest. There's a, a strong interest in mental well-being and concerns about mental well-being for adolescents in, in the UK and England in particular and also measure of enjoyment of school, so we can balance the academic uh, outcomes with other um, social uh, dispositional outcomes, and think about some of the implications for policy and practice. So what do we know? Well, for over four decades, educational effectiveness research, which I call EER uh, for short, um, it's provided evidence that both school and teacher or class, uh, the teaching group students are involved in, are significant in shaping educational outcomes. But that's not to say that background isn't also a very strong influence. Uh, very strong influences from individual student characteristics, family, particularly SES, uh, socioeconomic status, income measures, um, uh, and neighbourhood influences. Uh, you might call that place poverty. Uh, from its very inception back in the um, early 70s in the US, there's been a strong focus from the origins of the field in the notion um, of equity. Um, and what do we mean by that? I think some of these uh, terms need unpacking. Is it formal equality of access or provision? We have that in this country, if not necessarily in many parts of the world where still girls have less access to schooling. Do we mean equality of participation, of treatment within schools? Um, when I was at school, girls and boys certainly had a different curriculum. We had to do domestic science, and we didn't do woodwork technical drawing. So, you know, it's not so long ago that we didn't have equality of participation even in this country. Or equality of outcome, and that receives a lot of attention uh, today when we think about the equity gap between students of different uh, uh, groups, whether it, we're looking at ethnic or in particular social disadvantage, differences in outcomes. Though we know schools are very important uh, in the development of social inclusion, wider social and economic policies are also highly relevant. So educational effectiveness researchers have been particularly interested in the notions of how the research can inform practitioners and policy, so an interest in improvement. We try to study but also work with practitioners to enhance and understand uh, our understanding about the processes of effective and improving schools in different contexts. Uh, it's not necessarily the same challenges that schools face in uh, inner city London uh, uh, that they do in coastal areas of high disadvantage or in affluent suburban areas uh, such as North Oxford, for example. But equity has always remained a strong focus and something um, dear to my heart. Um, Many people have uh, uh, argued that the educational effectiveness research has prioritised academic outcomes, standardised test exam results of students. Um, uh, and often that is because that data is available. It is something of importance. It has uh, important consequences for students. So I'm not denigrating the academic. But the studies I was involved in as a young researcher um, and indeed those that predated me, the 15,000 hours research on secondary schools conducted by Rutter uh, and colleagues in 79, and the School Matters research in 1988 by Peter Mortimer and colleagues at the Institute, uh, they were conducted in inner London. They, we looked at both academic and non-academic outcomes for students. As a young researcher on the School Matters study back in the early 80s, I can recall the strong emphasis we wanted to place on looking at a broad range of outcomes, including cognitive measures, and we had a broad range of that, not just reading and maths that usually get attention, but also practical maths uh, and oracy, uh, children's ability to communicate effectively through speech. And we link with the, um, the old NFER assessment of performance unit that some of you I know around the room will remember, um, to develop measures of... Uh, practical maths uh, and, and speaking skills for our students. And we also looked at writing both creative and technical skills for children between the ages of 7 and 11. 
as well as social, emotional and behaviour, attitudes to schools, different subjects, attendance and social behaviour as rated by teachers. And we also, in one of the early studies, that tried to look at differential effectiveness, studying outcomes for different groups of children. And there was a big focus in the former ILEA, some of you may remember that, not the younger ones in the audience, um, uh, looking at age, that's t within term of birth, so summer born versus autumn born, and that's come back into uh, receiving attention in recent years, uh, gender, race and social class, as it was termed then. So the focus of educational um, effectiveness research, its uh, central focus is a belief in the potency of social institutions, the idea that schools matter and they do have major effects on children's development, they can make a difference. And we then need to look at, well, what does that actually mean in terms of the size and the extent of school and indeed teacher effects, uh, and that's received a lot of attention in the teacher effectiveness field. Characteristics uh, that promote better outcomes for students, the influences of context on outcomes, the processes of institutional change, and that links us to school improvement, and the long-term impact schools and schooling can have on life chances for children and young people. So the importance of student outcomes. Um, for us, the touchstone criteria to be applied to all educational matters concerns whether children learn more or because of the policy of practice, Reynolds argued in 97. We could also argue that it's equally important not only the learning of children, but also their enjoyment, their engagement, and their continuing to use that learning in later life. My colleague Peter Mortimer argued back in the early 90s that an effective school is one in which students progress further that might be expected for consideration of its intake. And that is a very important point. Um, intakes to schools differ. The schools serve different groups of students. Some have got advantaged home circumstances, some haven't. Some are ethnically diverse and have many students who speak different languages. Others do not. Um, it's silly to uh, assume that all schools face the same challenges. In England, um, the availability of national assessment and exam data allowed the development of contextualised value-added measures during the late 90s, and they were in use until 2010. Interestingly, they were abandoned. Uh, one of the first things the coalition government did was to drop the C, the contextualisation of school performance. I feel that as you get older in educational research, things come round in circles. Um, when I was a, a somewhat younger researcher in the 90s, one of the first things Ofsted did was commission research to contextualise school performance. They realised it was foolish to try and compare schools in suburban leafy areas with educationally advantaged children, uh, with uh, parents who were well qualified, to some other schools. Um, and research was set up, which colleagues and I at the Institute engaged in, um, it was piloted, it was all set to go, and then in the run-up to the election in 97, in 1996, it got leaked to the press, front page of the Times Educational Supplement, is Chris Woodhead, he was the Chief Inspector, on the side of the Angels, because they were going to take account of social disadvantage in comparing schools' results. Um, he wrote back immediately and said, no, he wasn't, though he had signed it off, yeah, I think perhaps he didn't realise what he had done. And it wasn't until there was a change of government that contextualisation came in with the uh, cuddly named, but perhaps schools thought less cuddly, pandas, pixie reports that pre were precursors of contextual value added. Um, so I do feel sometimes we go round in circles, but uh, Desmond Nuttall, another colleague of mine in the 90s, argued that natural justice demands that schools are held accountable only for those things they can influence for good or ill, not all the prior existing differences between their intakes. So in research, we're very keen to measure um, and disentangle the impact of prior attainment of students when they come in, whether it's at 11 at secondary or 5 in uh, primary schools, um, and the background characteristics of children, and then disentangle the impact of school classes and teachers on students' progress and their social and effective outcomes. But also we're interested in increasingly in looking at this broader range of outcomes, and I will move on to that soon, I, I promise. Um, a lot of the, the work in school effectiveness um, is growing theoretical interest in the multi-level nature of schools. So what do I mean by that as institutions? Well, children or students are grouped within teaching groups, often classes in primary school with one teacher for a school year, if they're lucky. Um, 
um, and uh, those classes are grouped within schools. That's the multi-level structure. It's important to model that statistically if we want to get accurate estimates of potential school or indeed class effects. Um, and people like Harvey Goldstein, who was at the Institute, and um, Steve Roudenbush, facilitated these kinds of studies of schools as institutions um, through the development of multi-level modelling and uh, HLM programmes. Um, and there's increasing recognition of the need to look at consistency um, and differential effectiveness for different groups of students. So within school variation and stability in school effects from year to year. Is an effective school this year likely to be an effective school next year? What are the patterns of change and hopefully improvement uh, of schools? So if we move on... Um, just why this is important for equity, schools matter most for disadvantaged students. Typically, we find in education effectiveness research that school effects tend to be larger for good or for ill, either positive or negative, um, for the background of at-risk groups, so often for ethnic minority students in some contexts like the US, or for low SES students, for students with low prior attainment. Um, Sharons and Bosker in 97 argued that schools matter most for underprivileged or initially low-achieving students. Effective or ineffective schools are especially effective or ineffective for these students. So again, this points to the notion of the equity gap and how far schools may be able to, I would argue, not overcome it, but help to ameliorate it. Um, so there's complexity in judging performance. I would argue that it depends on what outcomes you're looking at. If you only look at academic results narrowly, um, the basic skills, it will tell you something important, but it won't tell you, it'll only give you a partial picture of schools' effectiveness. We need to look at a range of areas and the social, affective and cognitive too, and that's what we tried to do back in the early days in our School Matters uh, research. We need to use appropriate methodology and have adequacy of intake controls. Contextual value added helps in this, um, but I would argue it's, it's helpful in studying performance and raising questions. Um, I will talk about confidence intervals in a moment, about why we don't want to make fine-ordered rank distinctions of schools. And timescale is important. Three years is the minimum for a trend to study improvement. Whatever we do, we have to recognise, as Firestone argued back in 1990, effectiveness is not a neutral term. Uh, and it is high stakes for schools, as well as often uh, assessment being high stakes for students. So how we define effectiveness of a particular school requires choices amongst competing values. The criteria for effectiveness will therefore be the subject of political debate. Are we overemphasising the academic at the expense of other important outcomes for young people? Ha has the curriculum been narrowed uh, and recently? this week, um, I think Ofsted has drawn attention to the lack of time for science in primary school and modern foreign languages because more time has been put into um, maths and um, uh, English and reading, uh, writing skills for students. Um, and that has been commented on by the inspectorate. So um, there are a number of questions that we can raise. Um, I have argued... Uh, over a long period of time, that effectiveness is best seen as a retrospective relative concept that's both outcome and time-specific. So three questions that we suggested when I was working at ISEEC, the International School Effectiveness Improvement Centre in London, uh, where we tried to work with practitioners and policymakers, and we had a, a national school improvement network that also produced regular summaries of research over a period of 10 years for schools and local authorities called um, Research Matters, um, uh, is that we need to, to raise questions um, such as these. Um, so is a school more effective in certain kinds of outcomes? Which ones? That's the what of effectiveness. For which student groups? That's the who of effectiveness. Equally effective for boys or girls, low or high um, socioeconomic status, students, free school meals often being used as a surrogate for that, um, and over what time period, the when of effectiveness, what are the trends? If you like, that, these three questions link with the concept that's received increasing attention in education effectiveness research, which is a notion of within school variation, WSV. Um, so between and within schools, the relative is the between, 
is this school more effective than the other on one measure? The within is, is this school more effective for some student groups, differential effectiveness? Or is it more effective for some kinds of outcomes, consistency and effectiveness? Or is it more effective for some teaching uh, groups, uh, for some teachers within the same school? So we, are, we suggested in ISEC that these kinds of questions are very good foci for school self-evaluation and review. Better for raising questions than making firm judgments and holding schools to account. And one of the reasons for that uh, is because of the confidence intervals that I promised I'd come back to. Um, there are various methodological issues. It's not a simple question of this school does better on test results, much as the press have liked to create league tables of performance in education effectiveness research, we've strongly criticised uh, that tendency because fine order distinctions, even of raw results, let alone value added, are not statistically valid. Um, there, are, uh, me there is measurement error and there are estimates. So when we um, create contextual value added measures for schools, um, each one of those has a confidence interval. That means that you cannot distinguish necessarily uh, fine-ordered ranks of schools. What you can do is distinguish broad groupings. These schools are significantly more effective than others for this particular measure of an outcome, and those schools are significantly less effective. And the ones in the middle we are not able to distinguish between because the ranks overlap with the confidence intervals. Those are more useful judgments, and then a school can say, uh, and we used to do feedback with um, local authorities, primary schools in places like Southwark, uh, primary and secondary schools in Lancashire, Hampshire, um, we give them feedback. So you might be more effective in your maths, but only typically effective in English and perhaps below average in your science. That can give a foci for school improvement planning uh, within the school. So how can data be fed back in a useful way that can be usable by practitioners? Okay, let's think about looking at broader outcomes in terms of within school variation. So student self-report measures is one way of collecting data um, to look at both within and between school variation. You can use student self-reports from interviews if you are uh, in a school, uh, but if you want to collect data and compare your school to another school, it's often good to use questionnaire instruments that have been developed so that you can have additional measures of other important social, behavioural and affective outcomes for students. So, for example, Herb Marsh, our colleague formerly at Oxford, um, is internationally renowned for his work on academic self-concept. Um, and he's shown that there are reciprocal relationships between academic self-concept and achievement of students. So uh, both can be mutually reinforcing. Um, so his, he would argue that schools should focus on raising academic self-concept as well as raising uh, achievement, and the two will then work together in a, in a positive way. We may also be interested in attitudes towards learning different subjects, to enjoyment, general enjoyment of school. Students spend a lot of their waking lives in school. Do they enjoy it? Um, I'll, I'll raise some research later on which suggests, but uh, not always uh, is that the case. <laughs> Mental health, a uh, big issue. Um, what is a school's role in that? Um, can schools help to support young people facing challenges? Uh, and motivation and social behaviour, including things, indicators of behaviour, being bullied or being a bully. Um, some schools have much less, um, much more threatening climates when you, go, you can pick it up. I can remember going into a school in um, London uh, when I was a young researcher, and it's not that it was, you were mown down in the corridors. It, it did not feel a safe environment. I went into many other inner London schools that felt much safer. Um, it was not, it was a disadvantaged school, but I went to other disadvantaged schools that felt very safe. So the behaviour climate of a school can be very important. We can tap that through student um, self-report. And one of my experiences, I, I will have a little digression, uh, was uh, working with Southwark schools and we were working with primary schools at the time of the Damiola Taylor. Some of you remember a young child of 10 was killed. And one of the things we'd done was, as well as looking at academic results and value added for the primary schools in national assessment areas, was the student self-report. These were year six children, so of the same age as Damiola Taylor. And I went to give the feedback on this project just after the murder had taken place in Southwark and um, had to pass the ticker tape. 
of where the murder had taken place. It was only the day before. Um, and the head from the school where Damiola had attended wasn't there. But the heads in the audience, there were 30 primary heads from schools in Southwark came. It was very interesting because when we looked at within school variation, it was the black African children who felt least safe in their self-reports in school. And the black Caribbean who felt safest and the white were in the middle. So it wasn't just about a black-white distinction. You need to look down into your data. They didn't feel safe on the way to school and necessarily safe in the playground. So the survey deck, but it varied between the primary schools. So that was one important piece of feedback. One of the heads said, well, what do they mean by feeling safe? And I said, well, this is statistical data, but in your school, you can go back and talk to children. It can help raise questions. What does it mean to feel safe in school? What was making some students indicate they felt unsafe? So that was one of the things that stayed with me over um, my long career in education effectiveness that's really sort of stood out when it, your research really came home to you that these were the things that were happening to young children in their primary schools in places like Southwark. Okay, so we can use student surveys to develop measures of important features of schools, of students' school experiences, things like school climate and organisation, but also teaching quality and classroom practice. And that can complement other evidence from, for example, classroom observations. It could also contribute to case studies of school improvement and shed light on within school variation and equity. Do all students have high quality education experiences? Is there systematic variation by student background? I'll be showing some data later that I'll throw light on this. Um, the way uh, we can also use student self-report data to help shed light on classroom learning environments and pedagogical processes. Um, that's become a prime focus of teacher effectiveness research. Um, and we can use value-added measures of student progress, observations of teachers' classroom practice, and student self-reports. They can all provide some evidence on this phenomena. For example, in the US, the class system for observation has distinguished three dimensions of classroom interaction, um, emotional support, classroom organisation, and instructional support. Um, and they've developed observation schedules that trained researchers can use to observe teachers' practice and interaction with students in the classroom. But they've also developed survey measures that can be used uh, as self-reports by students. So there are a range of um, practical and um, theoretical advantages in using student surveys. One thing is... Um, we can think of students as experts in their own experience. They typically have been taught by quite a lot of different teachers in different school contexts, particularly once they get into secondary school um, and later on in their, their um, academic career at school. You can analyse the data using multi-level models, which is very helpful to obtain uh, efficient estimates. Those of you involved with measurement will know what I'm talking about. Because we can see how student, what the, the common shared experiences at the class or the school level and also distinguish the unique individual variance in students' perceptions. We can also do simple things like compare responses for different groups of school uh, students, boys and girls, those from different backgrounds. And they're relatively easy and cost-effective to administer, and they can give opportunities, particularly if you use it as part of a school improvement initiative, to give feedback on their experiences. And uh, one of my uh, research colleagues in the room, Susie Davis, has actually developed some ways of that schools, uh, some resources for schools as part of the um, Oxford University Press primary school improvement pathways um, that are actually uh, give guidance to schools on how they might adapt and develop uh, surveys. So if you haven't looked at those, you might find that interesting to have a look at. Um, in EPSI, we, I'm going to use some examples of um, uh, using self-report measures because this longitudinal study collected assessment data from children from the age of three upwards. Uh, in year one, uh, when they started primary school at the beginning of reception, uh, and again in, uh, at the end of year one and um, in years two, five, um, six, um, nine, and again in year 11. But we also collected teacher self-reports using surveys on, on students' behaviour, but also students' reports through surveys when they were in uh, year two, 
so they were seven years old, uh, year five at 10. And what I'm going to talk about today, when they were 13 to 14 in year nine, and again, when they were in year 11 at 16. And so I'm going to look at the secondary data because we can't look at everything. But we used a mixed method design in this large longitudinal study. We recruited about 2,800 children when they were three plus in 141 preschools. So that was the clustering in our data. They then annoyingly went to many different schools. So it wasn't such... <laughs> they went to about nearly 600, 700 primary schools, um, which meant that we couldn't go and observe in all those schools to get measures of quality. Um, and they went to about 700 secondary schools. So though it was a lovely clustered sample for preschools, it was not so clustered at secondary level, but we still use multi-level modelling. It, it fitted the data better. But there are technical reasons why that's a problem. Some of you will be familiar with that. We also had a home sample of 300 children from the reception classes attended by the EPI children um, that we recruited at entry to primary school so we could compare having preschool with no preschool. This started off as a preschool study, but we then followed the children up at subsequent phases. The research was going to finish at age seven, but it was extended under successive governments um, to follow them right up to the end of compulsory schooling. And the DSE did want to continue to fund us to A-level, but their budget wasn't large enough. Uh, sadly. Um, so there was no further follow-up um, uh, that was possible and we had to get money from elsewhere to just look at A-levels. This shows the sample, six local authorities, 141 preschools, 3,000 children and the different key stages, as we call it in England, of education where we have followed up uh, the children. And we got lots of data. Um, so there's a lovely resource here. That we did many analyses. There are many reports you can find on the uh, UCL Institute of Ed Education webpage. And also, if you're lucky, you can find them on the DfE webpage. <laughs> so the DfE in 2010 decided to put all publicly, public, uh, publicly funded research by the DfE into an archive that is not very easily searchable. And even those who know what their reports are called find it very hard to locate their reports in this archive. So heaven help everybody else. Um, does seem an awful waste when we're all trying to have open access with uh, academic research, doesn't it? So uh, I can't think why that happened. May 2010. <laughs> we collected many assessments. Anyway, if you need the reports, you should be able to get them from me if you need them, or from the Institute website, though it, when it migrated to the UCL, that also caused some problems in some of them. It corrupted a few of the uh, recent reports that I'm referring to. They are okay on the DfE website if you can find them. So we collected lots of data from interviews and questionnaires with uh, teaching staff, surveys with uh, interviews and later questionnaires with parents, and measures from students' views of schools. And we wanted to see how individual, family and home characteristics predict children's cognitive and social behavioural development, and we also wanted to look at the importance of educational influences, preschool, primary and secondary school experiences. And we looked also at later ages, at in and out of school learning opportunities. One of the particular things we looked at was the quality of the home learning environment in the early years, which we found is a powerful predictor. Um, but we also looked at... Uh, experiences in key stage three, enrichment experiences, being taken on trips and visits, uh, turns out to be quite an important predictor, often stronger than some of the more uh, usual measures that you see, which are in data sets like, is a child on free school meals or not? So the home learning has separate influences. It can be a bit stronger, but we need to tease out statistically the net impact of these different kinds of predictors. So we've got lots of data, but I'm going to focus here on the um, self-report measures of secondary school students, academic, uh, non-academic outcomes, and their experiences and views of schools. So we had surveys. I'm going to focus more on the year nine ones, but we did them again in year 11 to look at variation in their secondary school experiences and to provide information about these non-academic outcomes to complement the GCSE results, which are very important. We wanted to see if our measures of school experiences, processes, would be predictive of GCSE outcomes. So were your experiences in year nine influential in shaping, when we took account of all the other things that we know from years of research are likely to be important, uh, in shaping your outcomes. And also, I won't focus on it today because there isn't time, <coughs> did they predict social behavioural outcomes and other areas? But I will be looking at mental well-being and enjoyment <coughs> of school, see if there are associations, predictive ability there. <coughs> so 
So let's look at some links between EPSI and past research. A um, number of authors have drawn attention to the fact that a favourable school climate can be associated with better performance and reduction in risky behaviours, things like drug taking and so on, um, in children. Um, John Gray and colleagues um, at Cambridge have drawn important to the importance of schools providing support and supportive environments to promote student well-being. And there have been various authors who've looked at links between school quality, child well-being and parental satisfaction. Voigt and colleagues identified themes commonly covered by self-report measures, including school safety, academic supports, personal and social relationships, school facilities and school connectedness. So our survey items uh, included um, items linked to classroom, milieu and learning, as well as more uh, general experiences of school. So we used a range of analyses to study um, the data, including simple descriptive analysis, and I'm going to show you some of the differences in students' responses to some of our survey items that I think are interesting and illuminating um, uh, for different groups of students. We used exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis to see if we could identify robust dimensions of uh, school processes and uh, related to views and experiences of the school. And then to predict outcomes, we use multi-level regression and multi-level logistic regression, depending on the nature of the outcome. Um, and uh, I've explained there what, uh, what we were trying to do, to try and identify these underlying dimensions, explore differences between student groups, see how that predict out predicted outcomes. So these are some of the measures. You can see the little questionnaire items. So students rated on a Likert scale, a typically four-point um, occasional um, on some of the other aspects I'll show later. It, well, mental well-being is a five-point scale um, items. Th these relate to uh, school environment, learning resources, head teacher quality. We identified eight factors, uh, underlying dimensions. Feeling of being valued and poor behaviour climate. You can look at the items um, there. Um, and we had data from, uh, in year nine, 1,752. So that was about 63% of our sample return surveys. So it was a good response rate, but it wasn't all the students. Um, and in year 11, it was 60%. Um, as we anticipated, we'd over-recruited disadvantaged students into the original EPI sample because we know attrition is, means that you tend to lose more of your disadvantaged students over time. Unsurprisingly, we found that um, people who returned the questionnaires um, were less likely to be in receipt of free school meal, 13% for the questionnaire group compared to 17.9% for the full EPI group. Um, and again, of white UK heritage, slightly more, 78% compared to 73% um, of the um, people who responded. And, and the interesting thing is girls were more likely to, to respond to the questionnaire, 52% compared to 48% for boys. Um, and that was very similar in year 11. So we may be underestimating some of the differences between groups by this propensity, this different propensity of certain student groups to respond to the survey. So we must acknowledge that. We only had on average a few students, three or four, in each secondary school. So we collected an additional peer sample from our survey of a similar number, 1,759, from 67 schools attended by the EPI uh, sample from the same form groups in year nine. So this meant we got a better clustered sample to test out if these factors that we identified from the EPI sample were also robust um, uh, when we looked at a, a better clustered sample of similar aged students, and they did in, indeed um, uh, prove to be the case. So that gave us confidence. And I'll come back to the peer data when I'm looking at variation between schools later on, because that will give us some more confidence in the multi-level modelling, because they, they got a better clustered sample. But these are the kind of items, I hope you've been reading them, because I'm not going to read them all to you, um, that help to define these self-report factors. And we'll move on. Ooh, we'll move back back to the previous one. Um, the last three, teacher support, teacher discipline and the emphasis on learning. So students rated this and these are the items that hang together to give us measures. So 
So the first factor of, of teacher support uh, relates to general perceptions of teachers in terms of returning homework, feedback, praise, general help and support for their learning. School environment is quite an interesting one. It looks at how students they view different aspects of physical space, buildings, decorative state and the reputation of the school. Valuing students relates to listening to students' views, respecting students and general levels of positive behaviour by school staff. Head teacher qualities is quite an interesting one, how visible the head teacher is and their perceived interest according to students in students' progress um, and student behaviour. The poor behaviour climate uh, is an important one, um, belief that students are given a hard time by others if they work hard, the level of compliance they think in the, uh, of school rules, do other kids ignore the school rules, um, fighting and whether weapons are brought into school um, and also whether students feel that it, they want to leave school as soon as they can. Uh, and then we have the factor of emphasis on learning which address perceptions about how important uh, students and staff feel learning is in their school, doing their best expectations and uh, uh, understanding and learning in lessons. So the strongest associations amongst these factors was between teacher support and valuing students at 0.69. The next strongest was between teacher support and the emphasis on learning, 0.58. You might, as you might expect, there were negative correlations between the poor behaviour climate and the other factors. The strongest between the school environment, so perceptions that there was a well-cared-for, clean, decorated school environment and the behaviour climate, strongly negative at minus 0.5. It was also linked to um, negative rating of their school's learning resources, so poor behaviour climate, less textbooks, less time for computers, uh, and so on. So the responses to individual questions can be illuminating. Generally, students were pretty positive about the items linked to emphasis on learning in their schools and teacher support, but they were less favourable about the school environment and the behaviour climates. One of the worrying things are negative reports of bad behaviour in classroom. Nearly three quarters of students responded that other people's bad behaviour make, often makes it difficult to learn. And just over a fifth admitted that they themselves messed around in lessons. Half of students thought that other pupils never took any notice of school rules. Um, and one in ten were aware that other students carried weapons in the schools, knives and things like that. Let's look at gender differences in responses. Generally, um, boys uh, were more positive than girls in only a few items. And girls were more positive uh, in terms of they, they were less likely to think teachers were unpleasant if they made mistakes, 12% compared to 21% of boys. They were less likely to report that they bullied others compared with boys. Um, it's interesting, quite a, a percentage of boys would admit to bullying. Um, the 40, only 41% agreed they never bullied others. Pupils who work hard are given a hard time by others. Uh, there's a gender difference there too. And about <coughs> teachers marking and returning work promptly, 68% of girls but 75% of boys thought that was the case. Girls were more likely to think pupils didn't take notice of school rules. So they're just some examples of gender differences. Um, family poverty, the eligibility for free school meals um, and students' outcomes. There are often fights in and around the school, much more common for those eligible for free school meals. It's part of the social stratification of schools and the kinds of area they're in, but it also shows the quality of education experiences is poorer for students from free school meals, typically. Often fights in and around the school, 69% for free school meal students, 47% for others. Most pupils wanting to leave schools, differences in perceptions there. Bringing knives and weapons to school, 24% of free school meals compared to 9% of other students reported that. Lower feelings of teacher support, but more likely to feel teachers are easily satisfied. Somewhat more likely to think work was too hard, but only a minority. And less likely to think they got enough computers or enough textbooks, so poorer resource, resources in those students' reports. And another important difference, pointing to the role of background, Parents' highest qualifications, if we compare those whose parents had no formal qualifications with those who've got higher qualifications, degree, higher degree or professional, or those in the middle, you can see quite clear differences in beliefs about pupils wanting to leave schools, the incidence of fights in the schools, weapons brought to school, 
being given a hard time if you work hard and again learning resources particularly we have a lot of supply teachers it's not in one of the factors didn't fall in one of the dimensions but 58% of those with no qualifications 43% of those with higher qualifications thought they got a lot of supply teachers again differences in textbooks changes to the timetable being frequent poor sports facilities and feelings that their school was a good school so we can see um, just looking at these responses that there are big differences according to student group in experiences of school so it shows how school uh, student self-report day can illuminate the often stark contrast in the experiences of school and suggests how differences in the quality of education may compound and reinforce existing inequities faced by certain groups of students let's think about enjoyment of school because probably it doesn't get enough attention normally um, these are responses to the item um, on the whole I like being in school it's a friendly place it's a waste of time I feel out of place I always like to answer questions in class that was somewhat less uh, that was disagreed with by quite a minority of students um, I like most lessons I get bored in lessons quite a lot of students 36% um, agreed and 5% agreed strongly they were often bored in lessons so things to do with enjoyment of school um, differ um, when we look at the relationship between those dispositions that we collected and we had a range uh, enjoyment of school was most strongly associated with views of experiences than any of the other dispositions so the academic self-concept feelings of anxiety citizenship values it was enjoyment of school that was more correlated with those year nine factors so uh, it was associated most strongly with teacher support 0.53 that, uh, the feeling of being valued, 0.52, and the emphasis on learning, 0.5. And there was a negative correlation, again, between enjoyment of school and the school's behaviour climate. Well, I mentioned the peer data. How important are school differences? If you look at these figures, and I will move across and show the size of the intra-school correlation. This shows how much the variation in individual students' responses relates to differences between schools. We tested it for the EPSI sample, but there weren't many of them in our many different schools. But the results were very similar to the peer data, where we got a good number of students in each of the schools, 67 schools, um, over 17,000 uh, students. So a large amount of variation uh, in the school environment followed by head teacher qualities and behaviour climate of schools, and substantial variation for enjoyment of schools, learning resources and valuing others. Much less for the other dispositional outcomes, particularly anxiety. Very little difference between schools and students' reports of anxiety. So it shows how either these, me these disposition measures um, are measuring different aspects of experiences, but also some vary between schools more than others so anxiety we think is more internally driven it's not very well predicted by most of the measures we've got and there's very little variation between schools so there are variations between students in their feelings of anxiety mainly linked to girls feeling more anxious um, uh, than boys and students with SEN special educational needs feeling more anxious but it's not attributable to the school in the way that some of the other factors clearly show differences between schools um, we can also use the self-report data to look at some other aspects um, which are, um, in include self-reported learning behaviour out of school, uh, homework, the propensity to do homework. Now this is different from what schools set, what schools say they set and whether schools actually set it, uh, uh, and what it's how much time students say on an ordinary school night they put into homework. Now, these were the students who responded to the survey, so we assume those who didn't respond may have been less inclined to do homework than these. <laughs> Not many said they did none, it's around 5%, but there are clear gender differences. Um, only 12% of female, 12.5%, said they did less than half an hour on a typical night, whereas that was nearly one, it was just over one in five of the boys. Um, again, if we look at spending large amounts, one or two hours a night, 24% of males. 31, nearly 32% of females. Very few spending large amounts of time on a typical night. Um, that's um, interesting because that may suggest engage, uh, differences in whether students are set work, differences in expectations. But remember, in our models, when we, we um, predict GCSE results, we're going to control for differences in parents, background, income, qualification levels, things that might relate to 
the propensity to do homework. Does homework time make a difference when we control for all those other differences between students? We'll come back to that. Now we're going to turn to looking at GCSE outcomes and attainment at age 16 and how we model progress from 11 to 16. So we control for prior attainment when we model progress when they were age 11 in English and Maths national assessments. And we look at a range of indicators. The benchmark indicators are what schools were often judged on. Did you get, so it's a dichotomy, did you get five GCSEs at grades A to C or not? Did you get them including English and maths or not? Did you achieve the English baccalaureate, which was just coming into attention at the time, but it wasn't a requirement at the time our students were in school. Um, and then the total GCSE score and the grades in English, maths, and the total number of entries, um, some of the measures we looked at. We use multi-level models to take account of student factors, their age, their gender, their ethnicity, family factors, income, qualifications of parents, socioeconomic status, Home learning environment, which proved to be a powerful uh, influence, so that was the parents' support for learning in the home in the early years and later on in primary and secondary school. Preschool influences primary and secondary school, where we've been going to test the uh, measures that I've just been showing you. And we've got a range of outcomes, but I'm just going to talk about the GCSE here at the moment. So did these factors predict it? I'm showing you some results for the models. Um, the key thing is, look at the stars. Yes, there were some significant. We tested the factors individually. So each of those year nine factors, taking account of all the background, predicts attainment differences at GCSE. And the odds ratio is the likelihood. So you're nearly six times more likely if you have a strong emphasis in your school on learning, uh, reported by students, um, to achieve 5A star to C somewhat lower for achieving it with English and maths, about two and a half times more likely. Each of the factors is significant, but of course there are associations among them. So we now need to test them uh, together, taking account of multicollinearity and looking at progress. I'm just showing you here, they also predicted progress with similar patterns. Again, emphasis on learning tends to have a, a, a strong effect and valuing pupils. But let's look at them together. Okay, and models of attainment, it's just two factors that are strongly predictive together, and that's behaviour climate, whether there's a poor behaviour climate in the school, and the emphasis on learning in the school. And those effect sizes are small to moderate in size. They're similar in order to the effect of free school meals in our models. They're larger than the effect of gender on attainment, just to help you put that into context. So we find that is significant... We also find um, much more variation between schools in an overall measure of performance, like total GCSE score and number of entries, which are more susceptible to school policy than grades in English and maths. And we think that reflects departmental influences. And earlier research in Inner London on um, department and school effects that I was engaged in in the late 90s called Forging Links looked at departmental and um, school influences and showed subject departments play an important role. So if you want to judge schools, you should use overall measures of performance rather than grades in particular subjects. They tell you more about teachers and departments in schools. Um, that's a, a message for policymakers. The emphasis on learning and behaviour climate were tested together in the models of progress, and we got similar results. But the, in, in, when we look at progress, it's the emphasis on learning that has a stronger effect than the behaviour climate. And again, uh, you've got the model fit there. OK, taking account of all of that, let's turn now separately to homework. Does homework predict attainment? Well, you can see beautiful and very strong effects. Um, so taking account of all your background, so it's not to do with the fact you've got more educated parents or other things. Any time on homework is a good thing. Even less than half an hour a night compared to none uh, is positive. Um, doing three hours or more, which was very, very low numbers, didn't seem to make much difference to your maths. Um, but generally, for progress, the more you do, um, the better. It can link with effort and engagement. But does it affect progress? Because you might say people who'd attain more highly would do more homework. Let's have a look. Or be set more homework. OK, it's very similar pattern for um, homework and progress. Controlling for your background, your home learning environment, neighbourhood influences, school composition, and so on. So, yes, out of out-of-school learning, as measured by this simple indicator, students report on how much time they've spent on an ordinary school night in year nine, so in a, a lower secondary school, does predict um, results. 
Okay, let's look at mental well-being lastly, and I will stop soon. Um, it's an important in its own right. It contributes to wider concepts of well-being. And like academic and social behaviour outcomes, well-being has been found to be influenced by individual fam and family and home learning, but to a much lesser extent than academic results. We think that family and peer influences and secondary school influences may shape mental well-being. And it also links with academic social behavioural outcomes and risky behaviour. So let's move on to some of the past research. I'm going to go through that quite quickly because I'm aware of the time. One in ten children or people in the UK has been diagnosed with mental disorder, and there's current concern that this figure may be rising. Um, evidence suggests an increase in emotional difficulties and conduct problems over time in young people. But on the other hand, people, young people generally report they're reasonably happy about their life, according to the Household Panel Survey. We use the um, Warwick-Edinburgh Mental Wellbeing Scale, um, and it measures two aspects, hedonic well-being, a person's own perception of happiness and satisfaction with life, and eudomic, I can't pronounce that, eudomic well-being, a person's capacity for positive psychological functioning, which would include relationships with others and capacity for development. It's got good um, validity statistics in terms of Cronbach Alpha that the items hand, hand together, and that worked well in the EPI data. We, got, we achieved a similar figure. And it's associated, so it's got concurrent validity with other well-being measures like the general health questionnaire um, and life satisfaction scale. So what things are included in it? Things like I've been feeling optimistic about the future, I've been feeling useful, feeling relaxed, feeling good about myself, feeling confident, feeling loved, I've got energy to spare, been thinking clearly and so on. I've been interested in new things. In total, we had results uh, from... Uh, 1,675 students in year 11. This was the first time we'd looked at mental well-being for our sample, so we couldn't look at changes over time. And we looked at different predictors. Um, and we also wanted to see um, whether additional things to do with parenting style and home emotional environment made a difference. But let's just look at gender differences. This is the outcome that girls tend to do better at GCSE. They tend to show better social behaviour, apart from anxiety. Uh, but this is the outcome where girls do less well than boys, and that's in line with other research. So feeling confident, you can see the gender, feeling good about yourself and feeling relaxed are the items on which there are significant gender differences for these 15 to 16-year-olds. Um, we found there were only weak, very weak associations between mental well-being and your GCSE outcomes. Um, but there were strong, stronger correlations with those school factors, the self-report measures in year nine that we created. And there was an association with anxiety as well, correlation 0.34. There was also a link between mental well-being and enjoyment of school. So people showed better mental well-being who'd earlier been enjoying school in year nine. Free school meal status, so our measure of disadvantage, a simple dichotomy to do with income, you can see clear differences in mental, mental well-being scores for those two groups. Um, the same is also true for school enjoyment um, um, but, uh, and for dis disaffected behaviour um, and general academic self-concept. The only area is resistance to peer influence, where the self-reports of free school meal kids suggest they try to resist peer influence more often. Um, do our factors that we were talking about earlier, our emphasis on learning, poor behaviour, climate and so on, predict these outcomes? Yes, the, uh, the, the effect sizes are similar in order to what we had had um, for our um, academic outcomes. Um, particularly valuing students and teacher support was important. So we've tested them individually and on the same slide you can see when they're tested together, um, the effect sizes are strongest for valuing students followed by head teacher qualities and the poor behaviour climate. So we can say, yes, tested individually, but tested together, those factors seem to predict mental well-being. <coughs> the other thing we looked at was some additional family factors that were important, family structure in the early years. Children whose parents were single parent never married, compared to married or cohabiting, showed poorer mental well-being at the age of 16, so compared to from, 
from a very young age when we recruited them at three plus to the study. Um, we also found that those who reported discord in their family had poorer mental well-being. Those who also reported quarrelling with their parents a lot had poorer mental well-being. Having a set time to come in on a weeknight predicted better mental well-being. As did not feeling under pressure to do well. And it must be remembered that over 55% of the sample in year nine thought their schools laid too much emphasis on GCSE results, even though they all thought, nearly all of them, that it was very important to get good GCSE results. Mental well-being was also affected by feeling excluded from a friendship group and spending most of their free time alone rather than with friends. So we've, we've shown that schools influence mental well-being. Just to draw this to conclusion now, um, I've tried to draw attention to the potential of using student self-report data in educational effectiveness research, using a lot of examples from the EPSI study. We've tried to show how student self-report data can help us look at a broader range of educational outcomes, socio-emotional, and so redress the narrow focus on tests and exams in high-stake accountability systems like England. But we've also shown how such data can be used to study non-academic outcomes, self-concept, enjoyment of school mental well-being, and so on. But it can also be used for us to tap into students' beliefs and experiences of their schools. And we think throw light on different features of school and classroom practice that are important in their own right, but can also provide practitioners with feedback about areas to address in school improvement plans. So one thing that can be done and, and has occurred where you get a large number of schools involved in surveys, you can see if their students' reports are more or less favourable than typically across a large number of schools. And we did that with the um, Making Belfast Work study and also the Improving School Effectiveness Research in Scotland, one of the things we gave back to the schools was information, anonymised, but about their students' perceptions compared to students typically in the research, so they could use it to inform themselves. We think such measures are very useful to explore within school variation in terms of things like differential effectiveness in education experiences and outcomes. And we've shown that some groups of students, those about whom there may be concerns because of their achievement, uh, but there are gender differences, there are differences according to whether your parents have got educational qualifications or not, and also to do with income, free school meal status, in your self-report. One of the worrying things about the data, I think, is that disadvantaged groups are more likely to experience poorer quality education, especially in, in terms of their reports of the school environment and learning resources. It can compound existing uh, family disadvantage. We've shown that students self-report have got predictive validity in terms of predicting later GCSE outcomes and indeed progress by controlling for prior attainment, uh, progress in terms of academic outcomes across the ages of 11 to 16. And also one of the interesting findings I think is the importance attached to time on homework. Even small amounts of time show benefits and this can be because it increases opportunity to learn. It also can perhaps encourage independence of learning of students. It's something they do at home rather than at school. Um, so how can schools support those students who perhaps haven't got family context where they may be supported or have the facilities to do homework? And some schools do run innovative projects where they will open up rooms so that you can do your homework at school rather than at home after school. Um, and you can do it in a club environment. So what are the questions for school self-evaluation? I just remind you of those again. We think these kinds of questions, student self-report data can feed into and help schools to use with other data they have. Uh, they, you may claim they're drowning in data, a lot of performance data they have, to look at overall effectiveness and to identify foci for school improvement planning. Okay, what are the significance of school effects? Well, I like the quote from my former colleague, Peter Mortimer. Um, Although the differences in scholastic attainment, we're not going to overcome, for, for the majority of students, pre-existing differences, but we can help to ameliorate the effects of disadvantage. It can make a difference between success and failure by facilitating or inhibiting um, 
the likelihood of doing well enough to go into higher education. When coupled with the promotion of other pro-social attitudes and behaviours and the inculcation of a positive self-image, the potential of the school to improve life chances is considerable. I think the EPI research says there's no magic bullet that can overcome disadvantage, but it does show how supportive education environments can make a difference to children and young people's education outcomes and so improve life chances. And I wanted to mention the Inspiring Teachers research, because here again we've used pupils' perspective as a much smaller scale study, teachers' voices from surveys and interviews and observations of classroom practice. But you'll see the intersection in the middle there links with some of those items or some of the factors that we identified in EPSI that can help. And we have lots of rich examples in that research that could be used for um, uh, examples to schools interested to improve the quality of teaching and learning. And the last thing I was going to try and show you just at the end was some real students' voices. This is a SANE campaign, the Black Dog campaign, and it, many schools... Here, are, are Here we are. This is Eastbury Community School. I will let them talk for a moment. just thought I'd end that. I don't often let my daughter get the last word, but that happens to be my daughter, who did her PGC at Oxford a couple of years ago and is working at Eastbury School. But there's a whole um, campaign that uh, SANE has got to encourage schools as part of their school improvement planning to engage much more with mental well-being. And um, they have a competition for who can decorate the black dog best. Um, and they're training school ambassadors. So I thought it was a very nice example of student voice, actually, to hear the young people talking about this and schools that are actually taking part. Thank you.